Welcome to Indie Jigsaw Bits and Pieces. This is where we take all the little pieces of why Scotland needs to be independent, what kind of country we want to be, how we're going to get there, and put them together to see what that picture looks like. It's Indie Jigsaw Bits and Pieces. Hello and welcome to Indie Live Radio's Indie Jigsaw podcast. I'm Fiona McGregor and we'll start by wishing all our listeners a very happy new year. Uh, some exciting news for myself and Marlene Halliday, who co-presents the Indie Live Radio version of this show. We are going to be stepping into the world of YouTube video and we're going to be presenting a magazine type show on Independence Live's YouTube channel, which we are going to call the Indie Jigsaw Show. We'll bring the audio from that to this podcast as well. But to distinguish it from the current podcast, we're going to rebrand the current podcast as Bits and Pieces, because that kind of is what it is, little clips that have caught our interest through the month. So I hope that's not too confusing for everybody. I'm sure we'll all get the hang of it as we go along. For now, let's get on with our first clip. Of course, last year, 2021, we had the Holyrood election. Three or four months after that, uh, Yes West Fife Group asked Leslie Ruddock to come and talk to them. And the title of what she talked about was What Progress Since Holyrood? Now, you might be forgiven for immediately thinking, well, not much. And indeed, there were one or two people in the audience who thought there had not been much and perhaps wouldn't be much Here's one of them. Just listen to this because it's just an interesting exchange between a, a woman very genuinely wanting to get on and, and get campaigning. And then we hear Leslie's quite thoughtful response to that. We're, we're getting very, very impatient. We're, we're going to be at least six months from the elections before anything's actually going to happen. Before I, 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 we haven't even, We've not got leaflets, we've got nothing. We've got nothing on any of the subjects that we have to have the answers for. Currency, climate change, all those are the big issues. We're going to be right back where we were. We've not moved forward at all, or it feels like that. Yeah, but right, you haven't moved forward, and you, I can see from your very demeanour, you are a blooming bundle of energy, girl, right? You know, you're... <laughs> You're wanting to get on it. I mean, you just like hod me actually back. You want to get out there onto the doorsteps, right? The beauty of where we are is that without you lifting a finger, the case for independence has got stronger. Now, I mean, this is a funny thing that, you know, so much of us, I'm the same, right? I don't know. I'm not trying to say, you know, what, what your background is. But coming from a bit of a Presbyterian workaholic, whatever it is, background, I like to graph to see things come out the other end. That's the way I expect it to happen. And we will have to do it. And we will have to graft. We understand graft, a lot of us. That is our natural home. But the weird thing that's happening here is that without doing any of that, partly because of how crap Boris Johnson's government is, movement has been happening despite the fact that we've not been able to go out and do anything. Now, that does not constitute no movement. You may not have moved. You may not have been jumping up and down tenement closest the way you want to, but that doesn't mean to say that there hasn't been a movement in people. And I think that a lot of folk now are completely detached from Westminster. They haven't yet come across to independence because no case has been made. But what has been done, and it's a bit of a double-staged thing, 
the cart has been detached from the horse. They don't believe in Westminster anymore as being a guiding light. So that's not, now I'm not saying that's not everything, but that's not nothing either. And it's not a bad place to be that folk have cantered up to the line on their own without being badgered by us. Let's just have to look at it this way because it's it's just what it is. We can't go around and change time. It's an ideal time for a campaign to begin, actually. That's true, what you've said, but that, that has happened by default or, or, or by yeah, the that's... default of, of Boris Johnson or the situation we've been in. People, okay. have, seen, people have seen the absolute, you know, the, the, the brilliant way that, that the Scottish government have dealt with or Scotland has dealt with the crisis. You know, we've seen that, the, the, the comparisons. But that's not going to help us on the doorstep when we need to move the other 50% over the line. Well, we're not we're not going to move fifty percent over the line, right? There's there's nobody in the history of freaking creation, not even Another 10%. Norway and Iceland that made it right. So, and I know you know that. Um, you, and you're absolutely right. It does my head in that we are where we are in many respects because there could have been so much work done if we'd had a different approach to governance. But unfortunately, the SNP is a very British party. It's very top down. It has a clutch of people with a lot of power at the top. The Scots, are unfortunately, have got a lot of British outlook, despite the fact that we don't want to, and despite the fact our electoral system changed. We expect leaders to do so much of the heavy lifting. Other places would have had a far more collegiate approach to problem solving, not here. But this is just what we've got. So I'm I'm worried, much as I kind of you know quite like Mike Russell and respect him, I, I have doubts about any one human being ever drafting anything on their own. I see what people are saying. Uh, Lynn is saying here, Mike Russell's already talking to grassroots groups, which is great, then, if he is. If you'd like to listen to the complete recording of what Leslie talked about at that meeting with Yes West 5, you can find it on our SoundCloud channel. Just look for SoundCloud, then Scottish Independence Podcast, Indie Live Radio. The event's called What Progress Since the Holyrood election. Now, just at the very end of that little snippet that you've just heard, there was a remark made by, by someone in the audience that uh, Mike Russell, president of the, the SNP now, that he has been interacting and meeting up with YES groups. And that is correct. As it happens, I am recording this episode of, of the Bits and Pieces podcast on Burns Night. I've had my haggis and I was suddenly put in mind of one of the Bard's famous sayings, or would some power the gifty geese to see ourselves as others see us? And I thought this clip from English academic A.C. Grayling would fit the bill for that admirably. Slanjiva. Scotland voted to stay in the EU and it is being dragged hither and thither by uh, an English party mainly, which uh, doesn't really care about Scotland, it really cares about you know, keeping the union for cosmetic reasons, I, I think. Uh, I, I now changed my mind and, and I think Really, uh, you know, Scotland should bring on its its referendum soon, get out and, and get into the EU. I mean, after all, half of the EU uh, member states have populations which are, are similar or smaller than Scotland's population. Half of the member states of the EU have GDPs smaller than Scotland. So Scotland could be a very, very flourishing member of the EU. And should be, in my view, because it wants to be. And it is a, a nation which has had long, long, you know, deep connections with um, the, the, the continent. And it's very natural to, to Scotland, I think, to be part of it. So I'd be extremely keen to, to see Scotland become independent, become 
a member state of the EU, and I'm, I'm migrating north when that happens. As you're probably aware, new Brexit border paperwork, let's call it, came into force from the 1st of January this year. Now, predictions had been that this was going to be onerous and would cause delays. And although it's not appearing very much, if at all, on mainstream media, we are getting reports of 17-mile lorry queues in Dover. What little publicity there has been about this has tended to present it as EU paperwork or EU checks. Worth reminding ourselves, these are Brexit checks. They've come about because the UK, well, bits of the UK, chose to leave the EU. So they are being treated as a third country. And that's what happens with third countries. There is a dimension of this situation, though, which we're watching very closely, which is the more chaotic the border between England and France, the more it makes us question, what about a border between Scotland in the EU and England out of it? Now, we know there's going to be free movement of people and free movement of services, but goods, of course, travel both directions across that border. During his conversation with Mike Russell, Gordon McIntyre Kemp asked what is the doorstep answer to the question of what will the border situation be like? So this is what Mike Russell had to say. Northern Ireland uh, got access to the single market. Uh, It is um, outperforming the rest of the UK economically now, which is unheard of. It's a case study in in just the the point you're making, the benefits of of, uh, being part of Europe. But there are issues around the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, This is something I'm sure that, that, that you'll be very much aware of. In terms of the question, what border will we have with England? How do we answer that question? How do the how do the activists answer that question when we don't actually know? And when do you think we'll know? Can we say, ah, the protocol's been started, that's the deal we've got? Well, I think we're in for a period of time in which there'll be instability between the relationship between the UK and the EU. We see that. And that instability is the product of the decision of the UK, not the decision of the EU. So first of all, we start off by saying the resolution to these problems lies with the UK. And, you know, I think what we're seeing is it being used as a distraction from domestic politics. I mean, I think a great deal of it from them is is playing to a gallery. And the, the Tories' fear of the right, and particularly what was the Brexit Party, which is now the Reform Party, which I think they're very scared of. I mean, just as they were scared of Farage in the... In, in the Brexit process. So we have all that to, to contend with. But the, the question of borders, currency, and, and other questions are questions that are best resolved by intensive work and, and study and thought. And some of that, as we know, has taken place in government before and needs to take place again because there are issues about, the, you know, about independence. And independence is the policy of the Scottish government and therefore needs to be considered. But in fact, I've, I've never found that the issue of borders to be that difficult to argue, and there are three parts to it. The first one is there's a common travel area between Ireland and, and the rest of the UK, and that's, it's inconceivable that would not continue because it would affect all partners in it. So there will be no people border of any description. And anybody who says, you know, essentially, you'll have to show your passport before seeing your granny in Gateshead is talking nonsense. And they're talking nonsense deliberately. There's then the question of, of what type of trading border, and that's the issue that exists in Northern Ireland. You know, what type of trading border should exist? And the, the answer at the present moment is there is a requirement for the customs checks, but they are very, very unobtrusive and could be almost non-existent with certain changes being made by the UK, for example, on, vet, on veterinary standards. 
If the veterinary standards issue was resolved, a lot of that would disappear because it's primarily to do with, with food and drink and to do um, with those issues. So that's an issue for the UK. Now, I believe in time those issues will regularise themselves. I think this is sabre rattling in order to, uh, to pretend that Brexit is, is, is beneficial when we know that it isn't. Our relationship as an independent country within the EU would be exactly the same relationship of any other independent country within the EU with the UK, exactly the same. And therefore, what it was would be a decision by the UK, not by a decision by ourselves or, or by, by the, the EU. And I think that, that will and inevitably will resolve in a more positive way over a period of time. It may require to get rid of, of Johnson. It will certainly require to get rid of Frost, who is you know, an utterly hopeless negotiator. I, I mean, I, I, you know, has been a disgrace in terms of, of what has taken place. Um, and if that process takes place, and I think you'll find that there will be a very seamless border, but that will be, up to, in the end, up to the UK. But the detailed work on that needs to be done by um, and brought forward uh, for the party to understand and promote it. With one caveat, Gordon, and I'll make this caveat, I've said this to you before. Some people in the Yes movement believe that there is a, a magic bullet on, on, on borders, on currency and everything else, which the moment it's presented, the UK fades away with their arguments. You know, if the Archangel Gabriel himself were to appear with, on with this written on tablets of stone, you know, unionists would still not accept it. Extreme unionists yes. would still not accept it. So we do accept these will be contended. These will be contentious debates that will take place. But I think what we have to prove, and I think we can prove it, is that our approach is not only reasonable, but reasoned and is based upon. We can show our workings. We can show on which this is based. And I think that will be important. So another clip in Indie Jigsaw. Uh, back in the summer of 2021, the campaign for a clean currency in an independent Scotland. The core group of people who um, are activists in that campaign for a clean currency got together and did a bit of an update with each other about where they think the campaign is as of now, what they'd like to be doing, the aims they think they need to be working towards um, as the campaign for the next NDRF gets underway. And in this clip... Leah Gunn-Barrett is just summarising what she thinks could be put onto a simple currency fact sheet and why she thinks we need one of those. The, the reason I think that we need to get a clear message across to, say, the YES groups or the National YES Network or the, the universe out there that supports independence um, on currency, I think we can be simple. We can have maybe a, a fact sheet, which starts with the idea that unless you have your own currency, you're not actually independent. Those of you who've read The Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton makes it very clear between nations that are currency users and currency issuers. Uh, the United States is obviously a currency issuer. We have a central bank, the Federal Reserve, that issues dollars. The UK has the Bank of England, issues pounds sterling. You've got the European Central Bank that issues euros. Uh, if we ever wanted to rejoin the European Union as an independent state, Scotland, we would have to have our own currency. So that's a starting point. Now, the issue is, do we want to rejoin the EU or, or join EFTA? That's something for the Scottish people to decide upon independence, I believe. It's sort of getting ahead of the, of the game. But having your own currency is fundamental to being able to do what an independent nation needs to do, which is to look after its people, 
to invest in, say, a green economy, which I think we need to do if the planet's not going to burn, to invest in education and a health service. We need to be able to control our, our economy, our imports and our exports. So we need your own currency. It's fundamental. And many small countries have done this. Andy uses the example, Andy and Ronnie, in their books of Iceland. It's a country. It's independent. It's the population of Edinburgh. And, you know, they have managed perfectly well. So I think, first of all, just to reassure people that this is completely normal. Other countries who've been on the road to independence, you know, Croatia, Estonia, some of the East European former uh, members of the Soviet Union have actually made a great success of independence. And many have had their own currency. Some have gone to the euro. Some have stuck with their own currencies. So first of all, is to demystify it. But this is completely normal. And, and when you are a currency issuing nation, you have certain power. You can invest and you don't have to go with a begging bowl as we currently do to Westminster and ask for money for all the services that we need for our people to prosper for a well-being economy. And as a currency issuing nation, you can incur debt. In fact, debt's probably not a good word to use. It's a better word to use savings because everything's a zero-sum game. If government spends money... It goes somewhere. It goes into the pockets, into the private sector, into bank accounts, uh, you know, into investment for small firms. I was earlier today listening to an economist uh, named Richard Werner, who was talking about the state of global banking. Uh, he's done lots of uh, research, empirical research. He's worked all over the world. And he's German originally. And he said one thing about Germany is that they have a network, a very robust network. 70 or 80% of all of their banks are community banks that are based in the local community. And their remit, they have to lend in a certain geographical area. And they lend to small and medium-sized businesses, which are the majority of the economy. And this is kind of what we're missing in the United Kingdom, where we're dominated by five large commercial banks. And we've all seen the impact of their lending for speculation, for investing in, in, in land and, and property. In other words, non-productive purposes. And then that's when you see productivity fall. That's when you see the depreciation of sterling and all the, the uh, stagflation of problems we've had in the UK economy, because we don't have the banking system serving the people or the people who actually need it, that is the businesses who need to invest and actually create wealth. Because remember that any currency is merely a measure of what a country's wealth is. Scotland, by any measure, is very wealthy. We have an educated population. We have an abundance and a huge rich, riches of natural resources. We have a developed economy. So there's no reason why we couldn't be very, very successful along the lines of some other small Nordic countries. Um, so I think it's, it's just getting that message across clearly, using examples of other countries that have been successful that have done it, and and be able to come back when these unionists make these ridiculous arguments that you know we are dependent we are dependent on Westminster sending us money. We send money to Westminster only get a fraction back. So I'm, I'm thinking if we could just put these maybe down in simple soundbite phrases that people can understand. Maybe have a fact sheet on currency. Maybe one on on uh, on debt because there's always a question of you know we have this huge debt here in Scotland you know and billions uh, and, and or GERS the GERS system which is a, an accounting system that was imposed on us by the Tories which does not actually reflect um, Scotland's uh, economy at all like we don't even have a lot of data showing what our economy is so I, I think maybe that's one way is to put together and I could 
use the help of many of you to do that. I, I did this kind of thing when I worked in New York in an entirely different area in gun control where we had fact sheets on various issues to, to try to educate people about the issue. So this might be something and then people could use these and if people are so inclined to write to the Herald or the Scotsman or the Edinburgh Evening News or local papers to try to uh, refute some of these arguments that are constantly being put out there. Uh, why Scotland can't make it on its own. Maybe that slow drip drip approach and if we're all saying the same consistent thing in, in simple terms that people can understand, that might be an effective way to try to get the message across. And also when people are speaking to their friends and neighbors, if they have these resources handy available to check, to look um, and to uh, refresh their memory about what the issues actually are, then that, that could be, I think, very helpful. You're listening to Indie Jigsaw Bits and Pieces. This next clip comes from a press conference from the First Minister of Wales, Mark Drakeford, on COVID. I thought it was interesting to compare the style of questioning from the journalists, first of all, which, as with Scotland, is very much comparing everything to England, but also... He manages to deal very effectively with the same kind of snidey, slightly hostile media questioning that we get in Scotland as well. And just a reminder that Mark Drakeford is a Labour politician, which kind of illustrates as well how out of step Scottish Labour are, not only with the rest of Scotland, but also with their colleagues in Labour-run Wales. Pranandar, First Minister. Um, why is Wales continuing with these restrictions when neighbouring countries such as England aren't? What is the justification for this? And is it political posturing as Tory MPs uh, described it yesterday? Uh, well, actually, I would put the question in exactly the opposite way. The outlier here is not Wales. Uh, Wales is taking action as is Scotland as is Northern Ireland, and as are countries right across Europe and right across the globe. The one country that stands out as not taking action to protect its population is England. So the question is not why is Wales not following what is going on in England. The real question is, is why is England such a global outlier in the way in which governments elsewhere are attempting to protect their populations from coronavirus. And the political contrast between Wales and England is this. Here in Wales, we have a government that is capable of acting and determined to act when that is necessary to protect our population. And in England, we have a government that is politically paralysed where the Prime Minister is unable to secure an agreement through his Cabinet to take the actions that his advisers have been telling him ought to have been taken, and even if he could get his Cabinet to agree them, he can't get his MPs to agree them either. Okay, thank you. And um, you said the latest public health figures say 38 people, unfortunately, have, have died from coronavirus. Um, can you tell me how many um, of those people died from the Omicron, uh, Omicron variant? And can you give any ideas why, despite restrictions in Wales since before Christmas, the rate of infection in the country appears higher than other parts of the UK? 
Uh, I think the second part of the question is an oversimplistic uh, view of things, because actually there are parts of Wales that are lower than most other parts of the United Kingdom, and there are parts of Wales where things are higher, just as there are in other parts of the UK as well. You compare the whole countries, you don't get a true reflection of the way in which this uh, variant has moved around, moved across the country, and where there are different rates of coronavirus in different places. The highest level, I think, today is in uh, part of Northern Ireland, where the rates are way over 3,000 per 100 of the population. Uh, so I, I just think it's, it, it's not a helpful comparison, really, and it doesn't tell you anything that is uh, you know, an accurate reflection of the position we are facing in Wales. Uh, in relation to the first part of the question, as you know, there is a, there is a time lag. You know, a virus starts in the community, feeds itself into hospital, feeds itself from there into critical care, and very sadly, some people don't survive at all. Of those 38, quite a number of them, I imagine, are still people who uh, originally contracted the Delta variant because of that time lag. But we will undoubtedly see, as we are seeing already, uh, and in other parts of the country, even more so, that there are Omicron deaths. Uh, the World Health Organization yesterday warned against people using the term that Omicron is a mild version of coronavirus. For many people it may be, but there are people who are dying every day from the Omicron variant, and sadly we won't escape that here in Wales. In this clip from the TNT show, Dr Philippa Whitford describes the privatisation of NHS services, particularly in England, and the threat to Scotland, where our NHS remains, for now, in public hands. Uh, and the concern is that a number of people have actually uh, called us tonight to express the same concern, which is that they fear that the NHS is going to be privatised. Uh, they also fear that the Internal Market Bill was Act was necessary in order to ensure that the privatisation of the NHS would include Scotland as well, because any prospective purchaser of parts of the NHS, because obviously they're not going to sell all of it, they would only sell the bits that were the low-hanging fruit, as it were, because that's what makes business sense. People's concern is that that's the direction of travel. And the, the clip that I was sent was you quizzing Jeremy Hunt, and he started talking about Kaiser Permanente as being a model. You don't have to look too closely at Kaiser Permanente to see that that's maybe the least appetizing model you could ever conceive of for the NHS. Would you, would you agree with that? How were you satisfied were you with the answers to the questions that you put to them at that time? I, I was rarely satisfied with the answers that I ever got from Jeremy Hunt on the Select Committee. Uh, I think he was very glad to see the back of me when I start, stopped doing it, it has to be said. But the, I mean, obviously, I've just spent three months on the health and care bill, which was very much put forward as this is an English bill. Um, and, and therefore, you know, e even our group, it was kind of, oh, do you really need to cover this? This is this is just England. And, and I'm kind of going, no, I'm going to go through this with a fine tooth comb. Um, and there's different aspects of it. Um, you know, there were things that it did do that reversed some of what was terrible in the Social Care Act of 2012. And it was that act that got me into politics. 
into politics with a capital P in that I was following what Lansley was talking about from about 2011 in sheer disbelief that anyone could think fragmenting the NHS in England and creating competitiveness instead of collaboration was a smart idea. Um, so that was very much what I talked about and obviously the threat of that to Scotland in that, you know, if they decide to force us by saying no money for health unless we do, you do what we tell you, then obviously they would be able to do that. Um, obviously, we're lucky enough in Scotland that we still have a unified public, publicly delivered NHS. And even though at this time of terrible backlog, it will be that health boards will buy in hip operations or whatever from private hospitals. We have never given bits of our NHS away to be run by private companies. We haven't given away GP practices. We haven't given away hospitals or community facilities. That is very much what has happened in England. And it isn't just that NHS hospitals have to compete with Virgin. They have to compete with each other. So you have this constant wasted energy of, of hospitals bidding. Um, and that's what they've had. And what it did very quickly after it came into effect was that all the hospital trusts in England ended up in debt. I mean, billions across the NHS in debt. And also what you started to see was performance going down, A&E performance going down, cancer performance going down. And because you've suddenly got players who are in the game for profit, for them to get profit, they have to deliver less. So while, yes, people say, oh, yes, but you'll still get free care at the point of need, but you won't get totally free care at the point of need. I mean, England is the only nation where you have to pay prescription charges. And today they're raising the age threshold on that. So WASPy women who are stuck waiting for their pension are going to end up not getting even free prescriptions, whereas we've got free prescriptions in Scotland. Many, um, you know, provision of prosthetics or, you know, equipment you would have to pay for. So what you find is people are paying around the edges, even if the core surgery or core uh, treatment that they get is free. And what you can certainly see in the data is a rise in private health insurance, private health care, and also um, more people just paying what's called out of pocket. They don't have insurance. But when they're faced with it, they go, let's all club together and get mum, her, whatever, yeah. her hip yeah. or something like that. And, uh, you know, an approach I totally understand uh, in, in a family taking. So what you're having is more and more um, non-governmental money, i.e. private money from individuals going in to pay healthcare in England. So if you look at the OECD figures, the public money going in from the government in England is less than goes in to Scotland. And you've got way more uh, staff who are involved in private care, both through the NHS, but also out with that. And what you now have is that the kind of premium hospitals in England, um, they used to have a limit that they could only make 2% of their income through private patients. That was raised by the Health and Social Care Act to 49%. So suddenly you've got NHS hospitals who now are really actively trying to bring in private patients. 
which means they will be queue jumping, they will be getting access to different kind of treatment, and you've already got rationing of a lot of treatments that have been made. This is no longer available, therefore you actually have to go and pay for it privately. So it's, it's kind of snipping away at the edges. This clip comes from one of the Holyrood committees. It is the Constitution, Europe, Foreign Affairs and Culture Committee. And during an evidence session, one of the witnesses, David Hope Jones, the chief executive of the Scotland-Malawi Partnership, gave a delightful summary of what makes the Scottish approach to international development distinctive and valuable listening to his description of the grassroots level and just how deep and extensive our partnerships are with other parts of the world. I I think this is a a wonderful reflection on the kind of country we are aspiring to be and the kind of global good neighbour that we are trying to be. Thank you, convener, and thank you, panel. This has been um, very informative. Um, I'm interested if I can first ask maybe David Hope Jones, but others may wish to comment on it as well. In your evidence, um, you said that there was a distinctively Scottish approach to international development. So I just wondered if you could expand on that, perhaps with a few examples from your Malawi um, experiences. Thank you. Thanks very very much in, indeed. I mean, I suppose for me, it's important that for a, an inquiry like this, the committee takes us of a big picture. Be um, that that means with all all sort of humility, looking at it from a sort of historical and existential, a constitutional uh, viewpoint. Why does Scotland do international development? Why does the Scottish government do international development? And the case that I would make is because that actually, you know, Scotland as a nation. Uh, ha- has developed something quite distinctive in its in its approach to progressive internationalism, particularly as expressed in the bilateral relationship with Malawi. Seventeen years ago, the, the Scottish executive, as was as First Minister Lord McConnell, uh, went out to, to Malawi. He fell in love with Malawi, as, as countless Scots had done before and, 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 and since. And he was really struck by the scale of, of, of civic links that he saw across Malawi. He was amazed that you could go across Malawi and, and reliably the people that you would meet would be would be banging on about about Scotland and about their church link and their, their school link, their university link, uh, the charities that they were involved in. And I've spoken to Lord McConnell about this. He was genuinely bold over. He came back and he started speaking to people in Scotland. He saw the same glimmer, that spark in people's eyes, that enthusiasm. Uh, that was there for, for working with, with Malawi. And, 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 and what his sense was, that that was quite distinctive from the sadly dominant paradigm of the day of, of an international development industry that was, that was based at that point more on an assumption that you know, we in the global north have the answers for the global south, that, that what works in Madagascar can be unproblematically transplanted to work in, 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 in Malawi that, that wasn't particularly interested in listening to people on, on the ground in a, in a meaningful way. And the business case that was, that I suppose, made at that point constitutionally was that there was a, a useful value add that Scotland and the Scottish government could make in supporting those civic links to be able to achieve something quite, quite distinctive. It never set out to, you know, emulate or, or replicate what what the UK government was doing with 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 uh, with with DFID now FCDO. And I think there's a real danger. Um, that if we lose that self-awareness, if we lose that big picture, if we lose that humility, we try and spread the jam too thinly. And, and, and inevitably, for practical reasons, that would mean sacrificing the principle foundations on which all of this 
is, is built. And key amongst those principles, I would say, would be dignified partnership, real, meaningful, human partnerships, and a recognition of the value that all of civic society can have. The bilateral relationship between Scotland and Malawi isn't limited to, it's not even defined by the, the, the governmental relationship. The, the president of Malawi said exactly that, speaking at our AGM in, in the autumn. He commended the Scottish government for recognising that the bilateral relationship was far more than that. It was these 1,200 civic links, these 109,000 Scots, 208,000 Malawians working together in dignified human partnership, um, and the constructive synergy between the governmental, the parliamentary, and the civic society. That's what's so extraordinary. Every single one of the 129 MSPs has Malawi uh, civic links in their con constituencies. That means there's that all-party political support that encourages the Scottish Government, that applauds the Scottish Government when they work in this space, and that support then feeds back to civic society. And you have a virtuous circle there of a national effort between Scotland and Malawi, which is remarkable. For every pound that the Scottish Government puts into the Scotland-Malawi partnership, more than £200 comes from Scottish civic society. There's no other country in the world that can, that, that can say that. That's something exciting and that's something special. And my encouragement to the committee is to in turn encourage the Scottish Government to not lose sight of those principles uh, that were foundational at the start of this process, of this journey 17 years ago. It is to the immense credit of successive Scottish Governments, but particularly the current Scottish Government, for the increase in the scale of the uh, International Development Programme from three to four to nine to 10, now to 15 million in the life of this Parliament. But even at that level, you know, it's it's comparable with the island of Jersey's international development program. You know, we can't kid on that this is a world-changing quantity of money, however good it is. And so my folk, my encouragement would be to focus on that distinctive approach that values civic mobilization in, in countries, that has a dignified partnership at its heart, that's able to support good governance through the constructive synergy between uh, the non-governmental and the governmental and, 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 and parliament, and is based on a reciprocal approach. Here on Scottish Independence Podcasts, we are always on the lookout for new podcasts. This next clip we're going to share with you comes from a podcast called Scotland's Choice, hosted by MP Drew Hendry. They've done about 38 episodes so far, I think, with some great speakers, some very interesting topics. And this week he was talking to the Finance Minister, Kate Forbes. Kate just gives the clearest explanation that I've heard yet of the Jairus figures. I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, go and hunt out Drew Hendry's podcast, You'll pick it up wherever you get your podcasts. I got mine on Podbean. It's called Scotland's Choice, and it's well worth digging out and having a listen to, as well as ours, of course. You can't have too many good podcasts. Well, well let's talk about something that's also uh, been uh, thrown up time and time again. You, last November, you were asked about Scotland's perceived deficit, and the uh, the JERS the figures were brought up, the General Expenditure and Revenue Scotland figures. Could, could you outline uh, what those figures are and, and why they might not be entirely uh, reliable when it comes to judging Scotland's economy post-independence? So, obviously, last year in particular, as with most other countries, um, the, the deficit figure for, for most countries has uh, increased because countries are spending more than their tax revenue in order to fund extraordinary measures. And that's the same for the UK government. And the JERS figures allocates uh, 
population share of what the UK government is spending. Spending 40% of the spending figure in GERS is reserved, so it's policy decisions taken by the UK government. 70% of the revenue raising figures are, are reserved. That means they're outside the control of the Scottish government. The Scottish government, every year, without fail, must balance its budget. We can only spend what we raise or what we receive on day-to-day on -day services, and we do that. So you've then got to ask, well, if you think there's a problem with these figures, where does that responsibility lie? And if you've got the Scottish Government balancing its budget, then the question is why the, the, the UK Government policy decisions are leading to, to, to these um, figures. So, you know, we have seen um, other countries, as I said, uh, around the world um, choosing to do things differently. You take Norway, for example, um, the deficits of, of, of countries, including Norway, have increased, but they also were able to draw down from the Sovereign Wealth Fund. Mm. Uh, so government debt in Norway fell uh, rather than increased in, in, in 2020 because they have alternative access to funding. And you know, our position basically is if you believe that the GERS figures are a problem, then you must, by extension, in a logic and rational universe, believe that the current constitutional arrangements are a problem, which is another government determining how money is spent and then allocating it to Scotland. So having said all that, in the event of independence, we would absolutely want to ensure that our finances are on a stable footing. Mm. Every country around the world is refreshing its economic prospectus. The fundamentals of the Scottish economy are strong, there's great potential, and we would want to manage our finances in a far more sustainable fashion than they're currently being managed under the current constitutional arrangements. And, and just that you know, you've explained that really, really well, but just underlying one of the points about the spending priorities that are being uh, made for us by a government in Westminster. Again, they're investing in uh, renewing nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, we've seen uh, you know spending across a range of things that. Uh, you know, people of Scotland wouldn't want. Um, you know, these are not choices that we can make here because they're being made for us, and of course those, those are being uh, brought up. The UK has obviously run deficits as well over that uh, period of time, and, and indeed if you look back over the history of the GERS figures, Scotland's actually more than paid its way, even by those figures, uh, with all the caveats that you've uh, made. You're listening to Indie Jigsaw Bits and Pieces. Now, although All Under One Banner's official March programme starts on the 5th of March in Paisley, the All Under One Banner organisation called for an emergency march in Glasgow on the 22nd of January. Very short notice, still a pandemic around. In a drizzly January morning, a thousand people were there and it was very good-natured little march, much smaller than anything we're, we're used to seeing, but still a presence. And this next clip, the SNP MP, Stephen Flynn, who was one of the speakers. Hello, everyone. How, how do you follow Bob? I think he's just stolen my entire speech there. Absolutely fantastic. And, you know, it's fantastic for me to, to be here because over the last couple of weeks I've been down in Westminster, as Neil has uh, indeed as well, and, and we've seen firsthand the, the chaos and the corruption, and indeed some of the lightweight politicians down there 
as well, who've turned a blind eye to what the Prime Minister has done over the course of the last couple of years. And I'm going to turn my attention to that quite quickly, because as you know, as I know, as everyone up and down Scotland knows, this Prime Minister is a charlatan, this Prime Minister is corrupt, and this Prime Minister is a liar. And... Absolutely. And the reality is, if we look over the course of the last year or two, what we've seen is a Prime Minister who has just taken 20 quid away from the poorest in society when we were on the brink Obviously of a cost of living crisis. Folks. This is a guy who was quite happy, however, to hand out billions of pounds worth of PPE contracts on the dodgy VIP lane, a VIP lane that has now been found to be unlawful. And this is a man who parted whilst people across Scotland and across the UK were dying. Boris Johnson needs to go and he needs to go now. But, but let me be clear, the, the issues that Scotland has with the Conservative Party, they don't start and they don't stop with Boris Johnson. Not since 1955, some 70 years, have the people of Scotland endorsed the Tories at the ballot box, yet we have been the ones who've had to bear the brunt of their policies. Their policies to hammer the poorest in societies whilst they feather their own corporate nests. Whilst they continue repeatedly to ignore the democratic views of the people of Scotland. So Boris Johnson doesn't just need to go, the Tories need to go too. But, but beyond just that, let me be clear once again, the issues that we have with Westminster don't start and stop with Boris Johnson, they don't start and stop with the Tories. Because Westminster is an antique, it's so inveigled in its own pomp and ceremony that it doesn't care about you or me or anyone else up and down Scotland. They've got more unelected for London than there is MPs for Scotland. We are but a footnote to them and our relevance and annoyance whose resources that they have That's taken even flat SNP. decades yeah, after just in case decades. But there's still people in Scotland, that. there is still some people in Scotland who think that Westminster can be saved. I love them to say there can be a, a federal UK high right. There's the, the Labour Party who say give us another chance. Give us another chance to to get it right. Well we we've been there and we've done that. And they failed us time and time again. The last time they had the chance, they took us to war in Iraq, an illegal war in Iraq. And we know fine well that if Keir Starmer becomes Prime Minister, he'll be quite happy for nuclear weapons to be sat just a few miles from this great city. And we know that we will have no future within the European Union on his watch. So let's be done with Boris Johnson. Let's be done with the Tories. Let's be done with Westminster, and let's be done with their union. And, and, and folks, let's, let's build something better. Let's build something that's got compassion at its heart, that's got people at its heart, that's got our values 
and our principles at its core. Let's do that and let's do that together. You know, whilst Westminster was dealing with the chaos of a ridiculous Prime Minister over the course of this week in Scotland, there was an announcement that you've all probably seen about Scotland, the £700 million that's coming in as part of the renewables revolution that's away to happen off our coast. Let's make sure that the resources that Scotland has, at this time they benefit the people of Scotland and that they don't end up plundered by the Tories at Westminster. And let's take that positive vision for Scotland, of the vision that we want, or the way we want Scotland to be, and let's take it to the people. Let's take it to their doorsteps, leaflet after leaflet, conversation after conversation, and let's make sure that collectively, together, we become independent. Thank you very much. Yay! Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. The second speaker at the All Under One Banner March in January 22 was Charlotte Ahmed from Now Scotland, and this is her speech. Hello, everybody. Thank you for coming here. Uh, the estimate is there's about a thousand of you, so well done to you, because you are showing leadership of this movement. I'm going to start with a quote from 102 years ago. And this was the first meeting of the Irish Parliament. This was the were part of the declaration. The elected representatives of the Irish people alone have power to make laws binding on the people of Ireland and that the Irish Parliament is the only Parliament to which it will give its allegiance. That was 102 years ago after a struggle and of course everyone didn't get everything they wanted out of that struggle but nevertheless those words of independence and freedom are still relevant today. Years on, 102 we have a years on where people in Scotland consistently through the democratic process do not vote Tory and yet we have the Tories imposed upon us, whether it be Westminster elections, whether it be council elections, whether it be the Scottish parliamentary elections. We vote one day, one way as a people, we get another government we don't elect. Imposed upon us, it's time that that stopped. Now, now, what do we do about it? Some of you might have been here during COP26, there were 100,000, over 100,000 people marched here. And they were marching for different reasons. For climate justice, for justice for immigrants, anti-racist, for defending communities who have been the victims of 10 years of Tory austerity. And I would say to people, and I know some people have said, we don't want to get rid of the Tories because they're the best advert for independence. I do not agree with that position and I will say that. I'm a socialist. I want the Tories removed for the damage they're doing to society and this damage they're doing to your communities. Every single day, housing, health, employment, the chances for a future for the youth 
are being taken away by millionaires and billionaires. I do not want that to continue, and I'm sure you don't either. So what do we do about it? And what I would say, I'm re representing here now Scotland. It's a small organisation in this big movement of ours. It's tried to foster unity between different people and reach out to different groups to bring them into this indie movement, trade unionists, young people who are the majority of people who support independence but do not have their voices heard enough in this movement. We've tried to reach out to people campaigning on housing, on health, trade union rights, on justice for economic migrants, etc., and climate justice. We want to continue to do that, but what I would say is we need the leadership of this movement to step up when will you get a better time with the Westminster government in disarray, the opposition in disarray, the Labour Party in Westminster, and we, the people, wanting change? It's not enough now, I think, to just go and turn up and vote one way because we don't get what we vote for. Everybody in this movement has to think, what is the next step for this movement? I want to see these marches huge. I want to see groups in towns and communities all over Scotland calling for independence. And much more than that, I want to see the leadership of this movement step up and deliver what they promised to deliver, and that is independence. And if the people have to take that leadership role themselves, then let's do it. Thank you very much. Keep up the fight. And the last of our bits and pieces for this month is a very short little clip, but it beautifully illustrates the old adage not to ask a question unless you know what the answer is going to be. Now this comes from one of the Westminster committees and the witness giving expert testimony to the committee is a Swedish health expert, Dr Pelle Gustafsson. One of the health committee members asked him a very good question, but was possibly not quite best pleased by the answer. Let's find out why. Um, just as a broad spectrum across the world, you said you'd like to aspire as Sweden. Which country would you hold up at the, the very top of the pillar, or countries, and why? <laughs> if you take all... Uh, preventive work as regards patient safety, I would say uh, I am personally very impressed by Scotland. Uh, I think in Scotland you have a long-standing tradition of working, uh, you have a development in the right direction, and you also have a system uh, which is fairly equal all over the place. Uh, and also you have this uh, improvement activities going on. So I'm very impressed by, by Scotland. Um, I would also say that I am quite impressed, uh, and in this, you mustn't take this as bragging, but, but I think the, uh, if you take the Nordic countries as an example of what you can do and how you can do it, I think there are things to learn from, from what we do in, in the Nordic countries. I don't want to point out Sweden especially, but, but I think the, the prerequisites of the Nordic systems in the way that allows you to work with those issues, I think it's a good one. It's no coincidence but, you're on the panel. <laughs> yeah, but I think also that, that uh, I'm particularly impressed by, Scot by the Scottish work for the last 10 years. Uh, and I think there are a lot of things. And we, 
uh, in the Nordic countries have a lot to, to learn from Scotland too. So that's a nice positive note to finish on, isn't it, for January 22? And if you enjoy the Jigsaw podcast, you might also like to try tuning into our YouTube programme, which will be a sort of magazine kind of format. We'll include some Jigsaw style clips as well. That's going to be called The Indie Jigsaw Show. And the first one is on the 4th of February on the Independence Live YouTube channel. We'll be looking at the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which of course has just had its first anniversary this week. And we also will be interviewing three members of Scottish CND and looking at some of the Hollywood speeches and a few other bits and pieces. Very welcome to join us on that. We will podcast that in due course. So if you want to hold on and wait for the podcast, it'll probably be, I don't know, maybe a week after the broadcast or so before we manage to get round to it. And in the meantime, I'll just say thanks for listening and we'll see you all next month. You've been listening to Indie Jigsaw Bits and Pieces, 